Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Modern Drummer Podcast. I'm Modern Drummer's CEO, publisher, David Frangioni, my co-host, Billy Amendola, and we're here featuring the world's most prolific drummers, listening to what they have to say, and bringing to you from inside the studio, the world of drumming. Billy? Hello everyone, Billy Amendola. Tune in to some really interesting facts on the Modern Drummer Podcast. I'm David Frangioni on this week's Modern Drummer Podcast. Billy Amendola and I have such a great special guest, an international superstar. Please welcome Rick Astley. Thank you so much for taking uh, the time to do this. You Absolute know, pleasure. It, it's amazing how, how life works. It, it's magic because I was um, talking to Phil Taylor, as yeah. your good friend, yeah. and I fell in love with the uh, with the boys' music, the Taylor Twins, who you know who were calling themselves a Butterfly right, right at yeah. the moment. But they did a song that my good buddies Billy and Bobby Alessi wrote, and I know them since the '70s when they were in a band called Barnaby Bye. And then I was just flipping oh. around and I saw them do Oh Lori, and I thought they knew them because they're a little bit obscure. And then, long story short. I got on the phone with them because I offered to help them out, um, do some things if they ever get to come to the States. They sent me some music, which is fantastic. And then Phil and I had so much in common. And then he just kind of mentioned that he was in one of your videos. And I said, yeah. do, you know that, do you know that Rick plays the drums? And he said, yes, I do. And I was like, yeah, I see him out. And the Foo Fighters that, I mean, I didn't know probably until maybe four years ago, three, four years ago that you actually played the drums. Yeah, I mean, you, you say play the drums. I, I don't know whether I would go that far. I, I, I started as a drummer when I was a kid at school and we used to do covers and the police are one of my favorite bands. I mean, one of everyone's favorite bands, but Stuart Copeland, I've met Stuart Copeland since those days, by the way, and he's an absolute hero. And as we all know, he, he was such an individual drummer. Do you know what I mean? And what he, gave to that band in terms of rhythm and, and the style and everything. It's just amazing. 
So I was really into drumming as a kid. And I sort of became the singer, to be honest, just because I started to write songs and nobody else in the little band I was in would, would sing them. And um, so I kind of got to the front and, and I, used to, I used to play and sing. And I, I actually, st I play and sing in a little band with some friends and we do rock covers and stuff just for fun. And uh, if you're and, a teenager- When was this, Rick? Put, it, this, put us this, in the uh, time. Well, it was when I was a teenager at school, so we're talking early 80s. So you were in high school and and basically doing, you know, singing and drumming, which very, you know, Phil Collins, Don Henley, you can kind of count people on one hand that have, have, have done that and, uh, and yeah. kind of fronted the band from the drum kit. And that's where it was kind of going at that time. Yeah, I mean, I, I just loved playing the drums. And if I'm really honest, I don't think I wanted to be out front. I, d I didn't, I kind of, there's, a, there's, a, there's kind of like a safety being behind the wall of drums and cymbals, I think. And, and when the gig's going great, you can be part of it. When it ain't going so great, you can just put your head down and just, you know. So the, the, there was something about that that I really liked. Um, but I also feel that, you know, drumming, I think, has changed a lot through the different decades. Because obviously when I was, probably I was about 16, 17, maybe 18, um, I bought my first drum machine as I was kind of becoming the singer in a band. I've still got it to this day. It's called the Roland Doctor 55. It's it's about the size of a, I don't know what it is, but a, a tiny little thing. That was early and days. Yeah, that yeah, was yeah, big first. Time. And so I used to step out from the drums, press play, the guys would all join in, and I'd sort of sing a few songs from the front of the stage and then go back to the drums. But but it, it it's such a different, uh, well, a different feel for one thing, but it's also a, a completely different sound, all those early modern, really cheap i guess but you know very still modern for its for its time the sounds and everything um it was a, it was a, a really big swing i think in terms of what people would go to like a bar or a pub or, or a small venue and hear something that wasn't a drum kit that was providing the drums and that was a weird moment for me for sure you know what i mean and i don't know is it it's um it was a very strange time, I think, for drummers, I think, back then, because it's kind of like, is this it? Is our, is our job gone? You know what I mean? So I know. A lot of people got scared. Now, did, did you play, did you practice then on top of playing with the machine or on your on any of the records that you did? Did you play on any no. drums on top? No, I, ne I never got near playing on a record. I, I, I mean, you know, with Pro Tools, I could do it now. <laughs> uh, but I've never, and I, and I have, I've actually... Uh, my studio is at home and I've made a couple of records in that studio and we've been, you know, it, it, we've been really lucky. We've had some success here in the UK with a couple of those records and it's gone really well. Um, and I have recorded like hi-hats and things and even a kick drum occasionally, but the idea of really getting an amazing drum sound, as we all know, I know anybody right. watching probably knows, it's, it's actually, I think, the hardest thing to do on a record. I actually think it's harder, I think it's, I think it's harder than getting a good vocal sound. Do you know what I mean? You, you can get a reasonable microphone, a reasonable a chain, and you can get a pretty decent vocal out of anywhere. You can do it in your bedroom, you can do what have you. Recording a drum kit is a fine art. It's almost like a, it's almost like they're sprinkling a fairy dust that either happens or doesn't. You know what I mean? And, and it doesn't matter what engineer and what have you. Some days it just works better than others. There's just no way around it. It just does, you know. So, um, so no, I never played on any of the records, and also those early records didn't have like real instruments anywhere near them. <laughs> you know, there was right, right. a bit yeah, of guitar, well, that, a tiny that bit was, of guitar, but that was that it. Was the, that was the time of just yeah. of programming, and and you had the best producers in the world. My God, they took you know they 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 took off after that. Um, and just blew up the world at that yeah, point. Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was very, I, I still to this day think I've been very lucky in a million ways, to be honest. I mean, never mind with music and having a life from music, but um, but I just think I met those guys, the Stock Aitken Waterman guys, and, and in America and various parts of the world, they're perhaps not as big as they were in Europe and, and other places, but in Europe, they were just, they, they'd have like five records in the top, 30 sometimes and and in oh, there and i worked at their studio I, I signed a record deal with them or a production deal but they just kind of got really busy and i ended up um making tea and getting sandwiches like other other young guys and girls in the studio and their thing just grew and grew and grew but they were having like a number one record every month so 
it was weird that I just signed to this little outfit who I didn't have a clue who they were really and nobody else did and literally once a month they were having a number one record and they were going up on the whiteboard you know it, it, it was just crazy it was amazing take us from the transition Rick from you know playing those gigs as a teenager and and then experimenting and discovering you know singing out front and having a drum machine you know and then transitioning yeah. to the point where you actually did get signed by uh, Stockake and Waterman and and get into their studio. What what that looked like, and then we'll take it from Stockake well, and Waterman. Pete, Pete Waterman from Stockake and Waterman, the three producers. He was more the A and R guy. He was more the business guy. He was the mouth of the whole thing and everything. You know, he was the leader of it really. The other two guys, Matt and Mike Stock and Aiken, um, they're incredible musicians. Um, their their kind of knowledge and Pete's to be fair, but their knowledge of actual the structure of songs and how to put one together and why that Motown song really works and why this really, you know what I mean? And I, I used to get to go to the pub with them. I was probably like 20, I think. Uh, by the way, you can drink at 20, by the way, folks, if you're watching this in America. <laughs> and um, and I, I would just listen to a lot of those conversations. Um, I met Pete Waterman, I should say, that he, he actually came to see a band that I was singing in and a couple of other bands at like a showcase thing in the north of England, a tiny little place very close to where I was born and grew up. And he really liked my voice, but didn't wasn't interested in working in a band, with a band. So I didn't like the idea of that for a while, but after a few months, he still kind of kept in touch. And, and I thought, well, okay, I'll go, I'll go to London. You know, I mean, I don't get to go to London many times in my life at that point anyway. So I thought I'll go to London and um, see what's what. And I think something clicked. The first time you walk into a control room with, it wasn't an SSL desk at that point, but it was a proper desk, you know what I mean? It had been a studio, the records had been made there. There was a, a couple of two inch machines, old tape machines, you know, not old, not old then, they were brand new then, but I mean, you know, it, it, the first time you do that, and I'd been in demo studios, but I'd never been in something like that. And the first time you do that, you kind of think, maybe this is it, maybe this is my moment, my chance, and maybe I should just have a go at this. But to just sort of put a flesh on those bones, they hadn't really had a proper hit yet. They'd, they'd had some sort of dance hits and some this, that and the other and a bit of recognition, but they hadn't had like a big, solid pop, conquer the chart hit. Um, but in the lead up to, I guess, me signing to them properly um, and also going down a couple more times, they, they had their first number one record, which was a record ironically called Say I'm Your Number One by a woman called Princess. And they were already starting to work on the Dead or Alive record, which is the record that had You Spin Me Around on it, which is just a mega pop song. It's, it still sounds amazing today, I think, that record. It's, it's still it played? It does. It's still yeah, played. it still gets played a lot. You're right, it does. And I think, I think because they made, like a lot of great producers do, they made a handful of records, not all of them. I think they'd be the first to say they're not all, you know, but they made a handful of records that are just there forever now. They're not going away. Love them or loathe them, they ain't going away. So, so yeah, so I, I decided to just give it a go with them, signed a production deal. Um, and then they got really busy, so they put me on the back burner and I, and I just hung out and made coffee and tea and got the sandwiches. Because a lot of the time I would go in at night and I'd, go, I'd do the night session. And then also, one of the things that was amazing about those guys, because a lot of people wrote that they, you know, any of the artists they worked with were like puppets and they weren't involved and they, you know, it was just like in, sing, out. And that was the case for a lot of people who worked with them. But I did loads of demos in a studio, which in that transition period was an SL, SSL studio, you know, brand new desk. It was like the latest, I think there were Sony's at the time, you know, digital de uh, digital um, uh, tape recorder. The 3324s. Um, yeah, the, the, the big monster things that came in after yeah. like, you know, and- Cutting and edge at that time, cutting edge. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, first time I ever saw a Fairlight was in their studios as well. And I, I kind of remember that like certain guys who'd be, I say engineering, we, we were friends, you know what I mean? I, I made their tea, they made mine, but they were coming up through the ranks. <laughs> But sometimes they'd be working on a record that was going to be number one in two months' time, but they'd also be working on my demos. <laughs> so, so, and I mean my demos. I don't mean the stock aching Waterman demos for me. I mean songs that I wrote, you know what I mean? So it was an amazing time, really, and it was. I think I was just there at the right moment where it was still rough and ready enough. They let the kids run riot at night and at the weekends, 
but it was like it really was like a workshop during the week nine to five monday to friday they came in they were at the desk at 10 they didn't leave till 10 they did five days straight like that and they banged those hits out that's what they did that's what they were about you know what i mean so yeah wow and and they created a whole sound at that time yeah. that was their sound everybody knew sure. that they were the guys who produced those records and that was their sound now yeah. going back um to your drumming what made you pick up the sticks? Like, who influenced you, and who are your influences? Um, I think I don't know. I don't know how and why and what and where, but I um, I always sort of gravitated towards drummers, and I think well, I guess there's a part of that in that my I'm the youngest of, of four kids. I've got two older brothers and an older sister. My sister uh, thankfully took me to a couple of gigs when I was really young, like maybe ten, eleven, or twelve. She was going to Manchester, which is the biggest city close to us. So I saw Supertramp, I think, just like Breakfast in America time when they were absolutely massive. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and talk about the musicianship. They were, they, they, for me, they were one of those bands. And I was really young. I just knew them because my sister played it all the time. You know what I mean? But they were one of those bands that wrote incredibly intricate music but had amazing pop songs in the middle of it somehow. Do you know what I mean? And it was like the musicianship it was phenomenal. Um, and, and also quite unusually arranged, I think, a lot of their songs. Do you know what I mean? Um, but the songs were great. The melodies were great and the lyrics and everything. So I, she took me to see them. But I also saw a band called Camel, which was a, um, a progressive rock band. Um, she was really into a lot of progressive rock. So I grew up on early Genesis and Yes. Uh, there's a band called Magma with a, with a drummer called Christian Vander, who's incredible. He's like the leader of the band as well. So I, I was always, I always had drummers around me, if you know what I mean. Just, just you know, I was the youngest, so I had to listen to whatever my brothers and my sister wanted. Um, I think Yes and Genesis were definitely a bit more her mainstay. And again, um, you look at the way, the, the kind of input that Phil Collins had on those records, and, and then again, obviously, on, on, on some of the Peter Gabriel Irby stuff that he played on and, and his own records, obviously. That's like a drummer saying, I know I'm the drummer, but this is how I sound. This is what I do. And there's been obviously various drummers that have done that throughout the ages, but he he doesn't get the credit, I think, because he became such a massive and also mainstream artist. Hey. There's loads of people, I think, who don't even know he played drums. It's hey. almost like a, a shock to see him, do you know what I mean? Play? And um, yeah, it's crazy. So, um, but again, I think I think when I started to listen to music, I wanted to listen to me in particular kind of thing. The police were just amazing, I think, in every way. You know, they kind of, they, they sort of crafted out a new way of, of, of merging two things together, rock and reggae and the whole, you know, and it was just incredible, I think. If anybody does that now, it just sounds like the police. <laughs> I remember the Bruno Mars track, um, uh, I forget what it's called, like, da, 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 like Locked Out of Heaven. And I remember hearing the, the groove of that and thinking, it's the police. <laughs> and, and, and I'm sure he knew that. He's, not, he's an amazing guy. I'm, I'm sure he knew what he was doing and what, you know, but it was, you hadn't really heard that sort of, and that wasn't reggae, but it was just the chops in it and the, and the one of, you know. And, um, Absolutely. I, I yeah. thought the same thing. It's funny you should say that. That's yeah. exactly what I thought when it started yeah. playing. Because yeah. it had that ska kind of rock yeah, it's got, push, yeah. push to it. I think well, he, he he's amazing, Bruno Mars. I mean, talk about people who can play the drums and you don't know about it. You must have seen him play drums or play anything, oh, yeah. actually. But when he gets on the kit, it's frightening. You know, it's kind of like, what can't he do? You know, but, um, but again, I also think it's, I think if you've been around drums a little bit, I actually think it helps with everything else. I think it helps you be a singer. It helps you be in the pocket with your own band. And, and the guy who plays drums with us, a guy called Simon, Simon Merry. I love the way Simon plays. And if he ever can't do a gig for us for whatever reason, which is once in a blue moon sort of thing, even though we might get another guy who I know really well and I really love and he's a great, you know, he just plays different. And I think that's for people who don't play drums and what have you, it, it, or don't even play in a band, let's say, but they're just interested. It's one of the hardest things as a singer to really feel you're in it if you're not completely like this with the drummer. It's, it's, it, it doesn't matter who else is in the band. If it doesn't start there and you don't feel that, you're a bit lost, I think. It's a, it's a bit like being on, you know, ice that's cracking. It's just not a great feeling. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And like you said before about Stuart, Stuart was one of those drummers like Phil. They created their own sound, mm. you know, and there's, there's certain drummers that play that could just sit down, play anything, and they're great. 
but yeah. there are certain guys who influence people to play and then yeah. they create a whole sound. So Stuart yeah. is definitely one of them. And with Bruno, it was funny because Sting came out. I forget if it was the Grammys or the American Music Awards, one of those shows. Sting came out and they did that song together. Okay, okay. So that was like a, yeah, cool. Yep. No, and, and, and I think we had spoke about this before, right, David? Um, I, I think that's why so many producers are drummers. For, yeah, yeah. For the reason Butch, that Butch, you just said. Butch Vig, I think, he's, I mean, he's, he's made some awesome records. And it's. I, I almost feel, again, and I can't remember where I read this, but I, I read somewhere a producer say that once, um, once you've got an amazing drum track, you've got a record. Everything else is just, you know, Obviously, it's the music, but but it but it but it, it's kind of like once you've got that, you, you're halfway there because everything else will come then. But it's you know, and I think he obviously you know Budge Vig obviously that's one of his one of his things, isn't it? Drumming, you know what I mean? That's you know he's a drummer at the end of the day, and I think that's you know it's just really yeah. important to him, yeah. And 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 that's 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 a very good point because I, as you said, playing the drums, you know, yes, you have to have the song. To me, that's that's the number one. That's the key, yep. the song. And then after the song, the vocal and the drums, that's what everybody hears. That's what everybody's well, listening to. Well, one of the things, when I'm in my little room, and I'm sure millions of people do this as well, I turn everything so quiet that if all I can hear is the drums and the vocal, I know I've roughly got the mix of that right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I kind of feel. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of piano players and keyboard players and guitarists and basses out there that aren't very happy about that. But <laughs> That's great. Well, with, without a doubt. And so, Rick, in those early days, it, you're, you know, you found the drums, you're inspired by Stuart Copeland. What, what are you playing for a kit then? Well, I had, um, it was, well, the first drum kit I ever had, I swapped for a, a leather motorbike jacket. And um, it was like this, it even had like two pigskins on it, on the toms, which is, it was old. I think it was called like a Olympic, I think, which was one of the cheaper brands of, I can't remember what right now, but it was, I mean, this thing was, was you know, it didn't have a symbol, it just had some hi-hats. So my symbol was just opening the hi-hats more and smashing that. And um, I played that for a while. And then the band that I had with two friends, one of which is I'm still really good friends with and have coffee with every week still. Um, um, we, we got a gig at our school. And we would have been 15 going on 16 at this time. I was just about to turn 16, actually, around this time. And we got a gig at the school. And my dad had a, um, a, a little garden center, basically. And so we had a really big greenhouse. And we used to practice and rehearse in there. And he just thought it was just this awful noise that we made, which it sort of was, really. But um, he didn't really like, he didn't really like, funnily enough, he didn't really like pop music. And he, he hated accountants. One of my brothers is an accountant. Anyway, um, so when my sister said to him, you do know that Richard, as my family called me, you do know that Richard's playing at the school dance, don't you? And he said, what? He said, they're going to make that noise at the school dance. And he said, yeah, you know, you can't, you can't go to school with that thing. So, so basically he said, I'm going to buy you a drum kit. You cannot go to, to, the, to your school and play those drums. So wow, your dad was that... That's really supportive. Yeah, That's no, it was great. amazing. It was amazing, considering he hated it. Um, and so the first drum kit I got, again, I think, because I remember it being, was there a thing called Maxim that was Pearl? Anyway, anyway it was a silver. It had uh, no heads on the bottom. It was all open. I don't know what you call that now, but no heads oh, on the bottom. Oh, concert time. Concert time. Yeah, because again, talking Phil Collins and that kind of era, and that, and that was, you know, really cool at the time. Um... I think I had like two rubbishy cymbals um, and I had, I think I, I think I had like two top toms there. I think I had a, a, a top tom on the, on the, you know, on the kick the floor, but I think I had two little ones. Cause again, it was sort of in vogue that thing of another guy, uh, Roger Taylor from Duran Duran. He used to have those um, rotor toms as well. A lot yeah. of people had those yeah. and hands. And that was like a halfway house is to have like these two little, and funnily enough, I know that, um, uh, Taylor Hawkins from Foo Fighters is sort of, he's, he does that a lot, you know, where he has these little, and, it, and it's almost like you've got your own little percussion thing you can go to if you really, you know. Um, yes. So it was probably more of a style thing and it just looked great to me. It was just like this monstrous silver, you know, and um, yeah, so, so that was my first proper drum kit really, yeah. The next band that I got into, I was playing drums and I bought the drum machine and we were doing that whole thing. And then when I really became the actual singer, 
we just said we're going to have to we're going to have to find someone to play drums. And there was a guy who was quite a few years younger than us uh, in our little town, but we we knew he was a really great drummer. So we kind of auditioned him, and he came along and really wanted to do it. Um, so basically, I just said. Right, okay, I'll I'll do it. I'll become the singer then, and that that's what happened, you know. Because I was sort of beginning to write songs quite a bit at that point. And I was really into the idea of trying to do that, and um, so I was quite happy to sort of give up. No, I wasn't happy to give up the drums. That's the wrong way of putting it. But I, it was just it, it, I wasn't going to be able to do both. Do you know what I mean? It, it was just, an evolution of sorts because you can yeah. realize the singing and the songwriting side and really tell the story of the song, yeah. which it sounds like that was really burning. Design. And also, even at that age, even at like 16 to 18, 19, I kind of sang, sang then sort of the way that I did when I had my first hits and what I've been want to do now. I just had quite a big, barrelly sort of like voice. And it just sort of worked. And I think you could see the reaction of people when we played in local pubs and stuff. You know, they'd actually put the pint down and go, what the hell's going on? <laughs> you know, so, so it kind of worked, I think. And, and so... I was sort of sold on the idea, and it, and there was a part of me still that did not want to be the front man, but yeah, it's it's, it's oh. something I still struggled with today a little bit sometimes. But did you did you realize though what a fantastic singer you were? What I realized was that when I sang in front of an audience, I think there was also a bit of a shock value because I looked about twelve years old, but certainly didn't sound that. So if you married that with the right kind of songs. Um, which we were doing a lot of covers and then we were trying to write things that you know, a bit like the covers we were trying to, you know, um, it, it sort of worked and and I could sort of see that and feel that. I definitely knew something was going on when I opened Yeah, there was a magic because you you had that blue-eyed soul and it was it was it was a surprise factor when people Yeah, but also, you know, my hair's a lot darker now, but I, I had red hair, um, <laughs> freckles. And I say I looked about twelve or thirteen, but I sang the way I did, you know, and and that and that I think was a, a happy accident, and it just worked, you know. So it's amazing because I was playing in cover bands when you had your first hit, and right. so we would learn the song. This is you know MTV's just kind of coming onto yeah, yeah, sure. the scene, and and it's you know where to get a song, you you had to capture <laughs> it on the radio and hit record on your cassette, Absolutely. you know, on your on your recorder, your boombox. So it was, you know, real early days. And um, I remember we learned the song and in everybody's head, you know, it was this like burly R&B kind of vibe going on. And then yeah. we saw the video and we're like, oh my God, this is like a totally <laughs> different, you know, well, image of what we well, expect. Funnily enough, um, that first record, Never Gonna Give You Up, um, it went to number one in the UK and it, it took about... I think five or six weeks in those days, you know, or sometimes longer, but this record took about four or five, six weeks. So I didn't go on TV properly, really. We hadn't even made a video. So it was working from the radio. It wasn't working from. And we had a couple of things that were a bit weird. One of which was that I went to some club PAs and I went with like two or three guys from the record label and, and from I think somebody came from the production company as well. There's a bunch of us, you know. And I was green as grass and I didn't know what was going on. So we're getting, going into nightclubs and stuff. And to be honest, like two weeks before, they wouldn't have probably let me in the nightclub at the front because I wasn't cool enough, if you know what I mean, to go to a cool club in London or what have you. So we're going around the back and we're going in the back way. And the two guys on the, on the door kind of let everybody in and didn't let me. <laughs> so they all got in there and then someone looks around and says, where's Rick? Where's Rick? And they're sort of saying, oh, we didn't, think he, we didn't think he was coming with you. We just thought he'd be coming later because, you know, he's, uh, he said, no, that's him out there. He said, that white dude out there, that's him. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's him. And it's like, so, so a couple of things like that happened a couple of times. Um, and then we made the video in the week that it, it went to number one. So it was kind of strange, I think, in a lot of ways that, especially in that era where the video was so massively important, we had a number one record. I mean, I'd been on top of the pops, actually, the big sort of you know music TV show we have here, or did have here. Um, but it still was doing pretty well before that. So I think people just bought into the record because of the sound of it, not because of the way I looked. Oh, and, and your vocals. I mean, you're one of, you're one of the best singers in the world. There's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. Thank you. I'll take that as a huge, huge compliment. Thank you. How did um, the whole Foo Fighters thing come about? Um, well, I, I'm lucky enough now that I get offers to do things in different parts of the world, you know, um, 
and we we were asked if we want to play at Summer Sonic, which is obviously one of the huge festivals in any part of the world, but it happens to be in Japan, obviously, but it's it's a really big one. So that was a no-brainer. We just wanted to do that anyway. And then they said, oh, by the way, Foo Fighters is a headline. I'm like, okay, because I'm also thinking that's the, that's the strangest eclectic mix of music I can possibly imagine, but fine. Um, and um, and I'm I'm a bit I'm a big fan of theirs anyway because you know they just happen to have two of the greatest drummers <laughs> in one band, which is a bit weird. But what can you do? Um, um, but they're just a great band anyway. I mean, they, they made some amazing. Well, they keep making amazing records, and um, yeah. So so anyway, so I went. We went to Japan, and uh, we didn't see their set on the first night because just because of timings and all the rest of it. So when we got to Tokyo. Um, we just said, my wife and I, we just sort of said, look, we said to the band and the crew, we're definitely going to get as close as we possibly can. You know, we're going to get either in the sound booth if we can or wherever. And then one of the, one of the amazing things about those guys is that they kind of, I think, have a policy when they can that if, if you're working, you're part of the gig and you're there, then you can just come and be on the stage. You know, I'm sure that doesn't happen in every single place that they play, but they're pretty open about it, you know what I mean? They don't have this kind of like, oh, don't look at us, do you know what I mean? In soundcheck or what have you, which I have experienced with certain bands, but we'll not. <laughs> um, and, um, and so we just, we just said, right, we're going to get right. We're just going to get on the side of the stage. When are we ever going to get to do that again? This would be amazing, you know? So we're at the side of the stage and we're just watching them do their thing. And it was like crazy. There's like 60, 70,000 people in a baseball stadium. Um, I'd had a few beers at this point as well because I played a couple of hours before this, you know. And um, and then um, Chris Shifflett, um, one of the guitar players, came over. So we all moved because he was saying hello to somebody. So we all moved out of the way so he could do that. And he gave this guy a hug and he had a chat. So anyway, he got, they're still playing, by the way. They're still on stage. So then Dave Grohl does the same thing. He starts walking over. So we all moved out of the way thinking, obviously, he knows this guy as well. And then... <laughs> And Dave sort of came over to me and said, I'm Dave, and gave me a hug. So, wow. so I'm like, it was one of those like comedy mo sort of movie moments, you know, where I kind of looked at my beer thinking, what is this really, what is going on? So um, anyway, I just thought, well, that's really nice. You know, they didn't need to do that. That's really lovely just to come and say hello. So they're playing. Then 20 minutes later, uh, one of the tech guys comes over he sort of hands me a microphone, pulls the barrier away and says, uh, the guys want you on stage. And I, I'm just like, for what reason? Why, why would they, you know? <laughs> and then I'm thinking, I'm just thinking, whatever, just, just go with it. So I walked out there and um, I walked over to the center of the stage and Dave gave me a hug and I shook hands with whoever I could reach and said hello and all the rest of it. And then Dave just whispered in my ear, in front of 70,000 people, um, we're going to do your tune but it's going to sound a bit like Smells Like Teen Spirit. And I said, of course you are, Dave. <laughs> so, so we'd never met at this point. I had no idea. I knew they knew the song. I did know that because they, they've got an, on an ongoing thing with some people that they have a thing with and they used Never Gonna Give You Up to protest against this. It's a church that has done some protesting against them and I'm sure you know about it anyway. So I knew they knew the song because I'd seen something on YouTube about it. But I didn't know they knew it. I didn't know they actually knew it. You know what I mean? But it turns out that they'd learnt it to play on a TV show in like a sort of a fun, fun sort of moment thing. Uh, but I didn't know that at the time. I had no idea what they were going to play. I had no idea what it was going to be like or anything. And it's just like they just kind of steamed into it. And, I, and the weird thing is, because somebody sort of quite said at one point, oh, he was trying to be really rock and roll. I wasn't trying to be anything. I was just trying to just... Um, be in the moment. So I just screamed at the audience. Am I allowed to swear on this, by the way? Yeah, sure. You sure? Well, I won't the whole thing. I basically screamed at the audience, come on, you mother... Right. Because I didn't know what else to do. I just didn't know what else to do. And, um, and that's rock anyway. and roll. Yeah, so we played the song, and it was just fantastic. It was just such an out-of-body experience. I'd had a few beers as well. But I'm just looking around. And also, but the weird thing is, I'm sort of trying to take it in because two of, two of my closest best friends, one is a, a producer, one is actually a, a voiceover um, artist. Uh, and we have a little punk rock covers band that we do charity gigs. We, we couldn't get away with it because we're not that good. We couldn't get away with it if it wasn't for charity. 
So um, I play drums, we have bass and we have guitar. So we murder a couple of Foo Fighters songs and, and loads of other people's songs, right? So I'm sort of looking around going, the boys are never going to believe this. <laughs> so it was so funny. Anyway, um, and we had a fantastic night with them afterwards. You know, they were, they were their crew and, and, the, and the guys themselves were so great with our crew and our band and everything in terms of, you know, we were way down the list in terms of people on that lineup. Do you know what I mean? But it was almost like, you've been working, you're allowed here. You're okay here. Do you know what I mean? And that was just really nice to see, you know, because some people aren't like that. Some people are complete arses and it's like, we're the headline act, don't even look at us. You know what I mean? So yeah, no, we know that. It's a great, great experience. And, you know, they've invited me to go and do that thing a couple more times in different parts of the world. And it's just been a really fun thing to do. And I don't, I never take it for granted. I don't think that just because I'm going to go and see them that I'm going to end up on stage ever. Obviously, that's it's just it was just a fun moment in time, and it was just great, you know. But like I say, it, it, you look round at that band, and you kind of think, you sort of realise that's one of the things that I really like about bands who, who will do that is they don't know me. They've got no idea what's going to happen, what what I'm going to bring to that. They're not bothered. They're just like, let's steam into this. This is why we're here, isn't it? It's to just rock and roll. It's just to have some fun and play songs and just live it and feel it. And do you know what I mean? And I just think how great not to care that there's 70,000 people watching while we do that. It was your moment just as much as everybody else's. So. Yeah, it was great. It was. It was. It was a real special thing, I think. It kind of, I think it definitely filled my batteries for quite a long time in the thing that rock and roll is definitely not dead. You know what I mean? Because you hear all these stories about that level of band where they don't like each other they don't talk to each other they don't you know all of this and they play a set like this and it's all on a computer anyway and blah 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 you know what i mean and then you find out actually they don't they just rock out you know it's like that's great it really filled my batteries definitely to see that so and i'm sure they're huge fans of yours i i i think we had a fun night you know and as i say we've done it a couple of times and i i just think yeah it's been a it was a really really fun thing to do and um, yeah, but I mean, again, what a crazy band to have those two guys, you know, all of them are obviously incredible musicians, but the fact that they've got two of probably most people's favorite drummers in, in one yeah. band, is, yeah, it's almost a bit sinful in a way that really, but there you go. Yeah. They, they, they've won the uh, Modern Drummer Reader's Poll a few times, actually. I'll bet, I'll bet. And again, they're, they're both very, very distinctive drummers. It's kind of, it, it's kind of. Yeah, it's a tough one that I think, you know what I mean? Because they're very, very different, you know, and yet they both have something that, that you know, makes them both tick, I think, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Rick, I know you're a great songwriter uh, and you've written a lot of songs. Tell us about that your first album and who wrote, uh, you know, the songs and of course your big hits. Rick wrote uh, Hold Me In Your Arms, which is a beautiful Yeah, I wrote, I wrote a couple of the ones, and, and I had a song called She Wants To Dance With Me, which is a top 10 in America as well, in different places. And I, I, I co-wrote a song called Cry For Help, which was... It, it, I, think oh, I it's, love that song. Thank yeah. you. And I think that's yeah. had, in its own bizarre, strange way, it's kind of, it's not had the life that obviously never going to give you up as, because that's just nuts. But it, it, it still sort of gets played a bit, that song, because it just sort of works in its own, I don't know, anyway. So, but... Um, I, when I met Waterman, I kind of knew that if I wanted to get any sort of songs onto a record, I was going to sort of have to sort of get it by him. And I understood that and I was okay with that because they were trying to build their Motown, if you know what I mean. So they, 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 I say Motown, it's not really fair to judge them in that way because Motown had some of the greatest singers of all time. The, the idea of artists really writing their own material wasn't what they were about. And I understood that. And I was cool with that. I was a kid. I was just like, let's, like I say, you have to have the perspective that I had, which was that I met these guys. They hadn't had a, like a bona fide proper big hit yet. I'm like, yeah, okay, let's just do make, let's just make a single and see what happens. That was my feeling. It just so happens that in the next six months, they had about five number one records. <laughs> so, so it was a bit like, okay. I um, Pete Waterman wanted to sign me to like a, a you know, a proper major label. And, and so he got, um, we went to see the guys at RCA that I signed to, which originally then, uh, sorry, uh, eventually became BMG as well, part of their umbrella, and now it's Sony, I think. Somebody owns them. Um, but when we went to see them, the guy there, a guy called Peter Robinson, who's head of A&R, said, well, I really need to see Rick sing. 
I, I mean, and you keep telling me he's great and you keep telling me he's got this vibe. I'm going to have to hear him sing. But we hadn't really recorded anything. So Pete said, right, come by the studio on Friday. So I'm like, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> so, so, um, so then on the drive back, you know, and Pete and I are in the car and we're driving back and he said, right, uh, you're going to have to go home. I was going to do his accent then, but anyway, you're going to have to go home um, and get your four track demos that you've got. Cause I hadn't done demos at the studio really at this point. I, I'd done a little bit of this and that. Um, <clears throat> take the vocal off them. Um, because I said to him, look, I've, I haven't got backing tracks. I never thought about making a backing track. Why, why would you put a 17, 18, 19 year old kid make a backing track in 1980, whatever. It's just, you know. So I went home, got the vocals off, came back and I sang to my songs in the reception of the Stock Aiken Waterman studio. And so the guy from RCA said, who wrote these songs? And without missing a beat, Pete Waterman just went, he's a great songwriter as well. <laughs> so so I, I basically ended up with four songs on that first album. Wow. And on the second album, I, I kept, I did what the, what the other guys in the building were doing, which was we heard massive global records and said, how do I do my version of that? That's kind of what they did. Do you know what I mean? Not the Stock It Kim Walkman guys. I think they did carve out their own thing. But all the other younger people were just, well, people do it to this day. You know, we hear a record and go, okay, I know where they got that from. You know what I mean? But so I did write some of the songs that got on the radio eventually and stuff. And But the first couple of the, the really big ones, the two, the, well, they were both number one in the US as well. Um, never going to give you up and together forever. I didn't write them. And... I listen, I don't have any, you know, I wish, I wish I'd written them in terms of the publishing, but in terms of what those songs have done for me in the life that they've given me and the fact that, you know, you can still go and sing that song today and it still kind of gets a reaction and still kind of works and what have you, you know what oh, I mean? I'm just yeah. looking to have been, I think, in a moment where that song came about, you know what I mean, so... For your do own you, songs, though, do you, do you write on piano, guitar? A bit of both. What's your process? I do a bit of both. I um, I don't even class myself to this day as being an actual musician. But for instance, I've made two records in my garage um, where I've played every note of everything. I just take my time. And because I'm writing it, I'm not doing things that I can't do. You know what I mean? And therefore, and I almost think that sometimes, I even think some of the greatest records that I have loved the limitations of the people who made them are what make them great. If it was virtual virtuoso musicians all pulled in from LA, London, New York, what have you, it'd become something else because they'd be going, well, that's really boring doing that. What's that? You want to be doing this, you know, and, and it sort of loses something sometimes. And if you think back to, I don't know, talking about early drum machines and early synthesizers, some of those early, early records like that, were absolutely amazing because the people who made them had no clue what they were doing. It was all from instinct and it was all from a, a love of, of, of making a noise and it just being, a, that's a great noise. How do I make that into a song? And I'm a bit more advanced than that now, but I do just literally just sit at the piano until I find a bunch of chords I kind of like. And I can't tell you even, I can't really tell you what they are. I can't tell you how I came about them. And I can't tell you why that chorus works after that verse. I don't have that musical theory at all. It moves me, so I sing. And then once I've sung and I like that, then it's become a song. So, and every now and again, what I do do is I, I will strip something down completely. So even though I've done a track for it, I'll just leave the vocal there and completely start again. So I'll pick the guitar up instead of the piano to see if, to see, you know what I mean? Just to see if yeah. there's something else that I would have done. Because like I say, I can't literally transpose from piano to guitar, I've really got to think about it. I've got to go, what the hell did I play there? What's that root note? Why is that note that what's going on here? And then I pick up the guitar and I kind of work that out eventually. I'm not a proper musician, but in its own way, uh, there's something in that that is, you know, I, I, I don't blow my own trumpet, but we, we had a number one album in the UK in, in like three or four years ago with a record I made in a garage and I played everything. <laughs> so it's yeah, like, no. it, so it, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in sometimes when you see like a young band, just don't overproduce it and don't, don't squeeze out of it what is actually great. You know what I mean? So, and I think it's easier to do that in pop music because I think pop music is the domain of the big producer and the big DJ producer and all of that. But when you've got a rock band or you've got an indie band or what have you, the sound they make in that garage, the first 
you know, embryonic stages of it is the sound that people will react to because it's different because they made it. You know what I mean? So, and it's coming from the heart. It's coming yeah. right from the heart. Yeah. And There's no wrong with writing it either. You know what I mean? That's, that's one of the things, to be honest, that I do like about a lot of the records that DJs make sometimes is, I'm not saying they all are like that, but sometimes you can hear that does not, that shouldn't be, <laughs> that note is completely wrong, but it brings such attention you know, attention and a tension that is incredible. And I don't think DJs are scared of doing that. You know, they'll just throw it in and go, God, that really brings the hair on the back of my neck. You know what I mean? So it may not yeah. be musically correct, but it's still yeah. feeling it and emotion. Yeah, yeah. 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 The, 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 well, a lot of the, the well, rap music, when they were sampling things, they oh, were yeah. keys and everybody was just pressing buttons and, and they created a sound. So, you know. Totally. One thing, um, in your in your studio, which which drum kit are you using? In your in, what setup do you have in your studio? Well, I don't play real drums in it. I've got I've got a couple of different drums. Um, uh, our drummer Simon has just moved to Natal, and so I went to the factory with him. And um, I'm almost embarrassed to say this because I'm not a drummer really, but I got a drum kit as well. Um, and I've always wanted, always wanted a what used to be Vista Light or Perspex drum kit. So I got a Perspex one, and it sounds amazing, actually. We, we, Simon and I, when we got back to a rehearsal room and set the kits up again properly and everything, because he set up his, his touring kit that he has, if you know what I mean, just to go through it all and everything with his tech and get all the tuning and all the rest of it. So we set my drum kit up as well, just for fun, you know, because we hang out a bit together. So I'm just playing it, just going, I can't, how does it sound this good? Because I always heard they don't sound that great. It's like you've got to really work on them, but it sounded amazing straight out of the boxes. So. Hello. <laughs> I've also got a DW that I, I actually bought from a pro drummer quite a long time ago now. It's like a, it's a gold sparkle. And uh, I was just floating around on eBay, just looking at old drum kits and different guitars and stuff. And I saw this thing, and it was what they call short stack tom toms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so, so so, and it just looked amazing. And I just thought, even if I don't buy it, I have to go and have a look at that. <laughs> so I contacted him, and I went to his locker basically, and I just thought, I just have to buy that drum kit. It's talking to me. Um, so I, I really kind of like that, just because it, it sounds great. Um, it's got quite a small kick drum to it. I think it's even an 18 or something. It's really small and the sizes are small until you get down to it. It's got two floor toms that aren't, uh, they're not on um, legs, they're on a stand, if you know what I mean. Um, I've also got an old drum kit, a very old drum kit, which is a premier drum kit, which I believe is the one Ringo had before he had the Ludwig that we all know. And it's like a sort of, what I would call formica, like a plastic sort of brown, mock wood covering to it right. um, it's not in perfect condition to be honest but i just really like it i don't even mind if it's in the like if it's in our house and it's in the living room or it's wherever i quite like it because it's funky you know what i mean it, it looks, it looks cool. almost like a bit of furniture rather than a drum kit yeah drums well drums are like guitars you know that's why somebody uh, picks up so many guitars you know yeah. I have people sit next to me at a concert and they say god another guitar well, well, why did why they pick up another guitar well same thing with drums you want that classic 70s sound you know you go for that certain kit you want yeah. that 60s sound you got you go for that certain kit so it's yeah. it's important i think for me one of the things that you know if you're doing tracks at home and stuff i've got a, an electric kit and i i kind of midi it up so i can you know i've got loads and loads and loads of sounds and different programs and all the rest of it and it's never going to replace drums. And if I ever want real drums, then you've got to record some drums somehow, one way or another. But one of the things I think it's great for um, is that I, I can program drums and I, I kind of know what things should do and all the rest of it. But it's one thing doing it like that or even doing it like that, you know. And it's very different to just, just be on the song and just kind of go, you know what I mean? And just feel, yeah, that felt good. And, and even if it's not perfectly in time, I just still throw it in there and, it, and then it adds a bit of something else to it all of a sudden. Do you know what I mean? So yep. I don't, I'm not one of those people who's like, it has to be real drums or else it's not a record or, you know, it's not the real deal and all this. Because I think if you actually closely looked at a lot of records that you even think are real drums, they're not half the time. They're just really, really well put together. Because like we said earlier on, it's so difficult to get a really great drum sound. It, it, it's, it's, the, it's, you know, it's really, really hard. So... 
I'm kind of all for throwing anything in there really and seeing what makes the sound you want to make, you know. I use Logic, I, I do everything in Logic and I don't go into Pro Tools until we're going to mix something just because I never really got to grips with Pro Tools. I know it's incredible, it's amazing, but I just never got to grips with it. And the more you spend time on one, it's just harder to go to the other side. And I think, you know, I'm 55, so when when I saw the sort of move to computers and, and the way Pro Tools went, it was obviously very much, this is the engineer's world. And and something like Logic was very much, this is for musicians. You know, this is this is where the keyboard players are going and this is what, you know. And so I just kind of stayed with that. Um, it's pretty amazing logic, I think. I mean, when you think today, I don't know what it costs now, Logic, if you go and buy it, but it's, it's I don't know, it's a couple of hundred bucks in it or whatever it is. Oh, yeah. It's insane what, what, very you, know, what you can very, do with it. Very, very um, yeah, and what I, what I try and do is <clears throat> I have a few, um, I guess, setups that I go to. Um, that are, if I'm going to go in for a coffee in the morning and just turn my gear on, I have a few things that are already in there straight away, i.e. a decent, um, I have like four different guitar setups, two acoustics, two electrics, just so I can go, okay, there's a clean electric, there's an electric with a bit of grunge on it, just so I don't have to start going what, 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 because for me, like I say, I don't even count myself as a musician, I can work on that and I can work on that with someone later, I just want to be able to play something. So I have a couple of different pianos set up as well. I have a, a programmable bass, but a really good sounding one. But I also, I've got a really nice Fender Jazz that I've had for years and I really just like the way it feels and sounds. So in other words, I've got what I've got my own little band in the room. It's just, I play it one by one, if you know what I mean. And that's the record. I made a record when I turned 50 and that's the one we had the number one with. And um, I made that record. I hadn't made a record for years. And I just, I just felt, you know what, I'm turning 50. I'm not going to go and do something crazy, you know, like get divorced and get a younger wife and do all of that. But my midlife crisis will be, I'll go and make another record, right? No one may hear it, but I'm going to make a record. That's what I said to myself. And then it just sort of grew into something else. And then it grew into, you know, something great. Um, but when I went in there, I bought a new computer. I set up the room slightly differently. And I said, the instruments I've got in front of me, and the ones obviously in Logic as well, but I've got a real piano as well. So I've got a piano, I've got a bass, I've got a lot of drum sounds, I've got drum kits, I've got mics, I've got the stuff. I've sort of said, whatever's in this room is, is my band, this is it. So the bass sound on pretty much every one of the tracks is the same bass sound. It might change a little bit, obviously, and then in the mix it might change a bit of something, but I'm saying it is the same bass and it's going through the same channel and the effects, it, it, that's what it is. Partly because I kind of feel, well, that's what bands used to do. He's the bass player. That's the bass player he plays. That's the, you know, he has an Ampeg, well, that's what he does. And, and therefore, I kind of wanted to do that for my little garage project. And so that's what I did. I didn't get, and also one of the things that I find really frustrating, I might be at a friend's studio at some point and I'll be, you know, on their computer, just looking around and doing what I've been. I think, right, there are 5 million synth sounds um I, I i'm already like i need a coffee already do you know what i mean so i kind of feel i don't i'm not being purist about it but i just kind of think you can get lost in that and i think for certain kinds of music you need to get lost in it because that's what those records are about you know what i mean it's the experimentation of all of that and eventually they get this thing but i'm not like that i'm much more if you can sit at a piano pick up a guitar and then sing it to somebody, then that's the world I sort of operate in a little bit more, I think. However pop it might turn out, that's how it's born, if you know what I mean. And that's kind of how I like to stick, so. And you don't, and you're, you're, a, you're a great songwriter, you're, and you are okay. a great musician, so we're gonna tell I'm all you. Right. Honestly, believe me, I'm not, you can get away with murder. If you turn but, the lights down low enough, you can get away with murder these but, days. But, I know the caliber of the people that I work with, you see, and, and, I, and I appreciate that I work with them, and so, I find it sometimes a bit strange to say to Adam, who plays guitar in our band, and sort of say, look, that's the part, that's what it is. Because I know that he's capable of doing anything, but he then comes back to me and sort of says, yeah, but that's what makes it funky. I'm not like that. I'm not John Legend, do you know what I mean? I ain't going to do that, you know what I mean? No. I like to be in a dark room on my own, press play and record, and have all the time in the world to get it right, you know what I mean? So. Well, that's, that's the thing, too. I mean... You don't have to do it. People want to see you. When they see see you, they want to just see you on stage singing. Yeah, and, yeah. and you Absolutely. Know, that's what they want to see. But Absolutely. in the studio, it's great. I love the way you put it because 
you don't have to waste time. You have it set up. And that's a great analogy, the way you said about, well, that's the same sound. Because if you were in a band, that's the way it would be. And I love that you have it set up that way. Because when you go into create, you don't want to be thinking about, I got to yeah. press this button. I got to do this. I got to hook up this wire now. Absolutely. I, you lose Absolutely. concentration. You're not writing yeah. a song. You're a, you're and also a because songwriter. I think we're so lucky with the way that you can make music today with computers that you can replace it pretty easy you can do things you can you know it, it i think in yesteryear it was a bit of a thing to kind of say we're going to redo all of this on that sometimes that was a bit of a sort of a frightening experience to try and recreate something or sort of say well we love the way this, the piano sounds we're just not completely sure about the part and you go well it sounds exactly the same today as it did you know what i mean it's a lot easier to right. do to do that today i think and i yeah. think you know people are so much more involved sometimes in, in in their early stages of their careers about recording and writing and, and even producing their own so i mean look at the billy eilish thing you know that <clears throat> they made a record in a bedroom um probably the biggest record that year or whatever and and but they're so involved in making that record and again you know i don't know much about the, the pair of them to be honest in terms of their musical obviously they're extremely talented i'm not i'm not debating that but i'm saying it's, it, their sound is quite unique, I think, and I think it comes, it, it, to me, it sort of feels it's born of the fact that they're really close and they made that record without loads of people watching and make it and kind of sticking their oar in, do you know what I mean? Right. It's unique to them because they made it in a bedroom, you know what I mean? And I think so many more people get a chance to do that because of computers today. Well, listen, I know we can keep you all day, so I want to thank you so, so much for taking the time Pleasure. to do this. I mean... We've, we're, we're all big fans of yours. We've always been. Thank you. And well, I want to say thank you on behalf of Modern Drummer and your millions of fans out there. And, and thank you, Rick, for sharing all that insight. And, and a lot of people had no idea of your connection and passion for the drums. And, and really the beginning of, of all of this started, you know, on the drums. Everybody should start on the drums. As far as I'm concerned, everybody. I don't yeah, care. there you, you go. Start on the drums. And then move on to so you should you should have to do a month long probation on drums. <laughs> I think drum probation by Rick Athley. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Have a good so one. Much. Thank you. Pleasure. Bye bye. Cheers. Thanks a lot.
Thank you, everybody, for tuning into this podcast. Billy Amendola, David Frangioni, such an honor to host Rick Astley. Had so many drum tidbits. Who would have known that someone who's had such a prolific career as an artist started out and really at heart is a drummer? So everybody, stay healthy, stay strong, keep drumming, and we'll see you next time on the Modern Drummer Podcast. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Stay hydrated, drink your hint water, and we'll see you soon. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.